This episode of Little Bit Leave It is sponsored by Little Bit Leave It, a Love Island UK podcast for the USA. Tonight, on Little Bit Leave It. Hey everybody, welcome to a very special bonus episode of Little Bit Leave It. Yes, this is the very first bonus episode for Patreon subscribers. We are going to make this one available to everybody though, because... We don't have any Patreon subscribers yet at the moment because we're a brand new podcast. But you could be the first one. Yeah, just think about that. On your next Zoom cocktail party, you can tell all your friends that you were the very first subscriber to this random podcast by these two middle-aged people in their basement. Don't you want to be that cool? Friends? I mean, I think people could tell their grandchildren eventually. This is a, this is a, a historic moment for somebody. Yeah, but not us. Not us. But for somebody, we've got a really fun topic, we think. So as opposed to our regular episodes where we are very, very focused, laser focused on season six, we're going to be talking about all six seasons of Love Island UK today. And the topic is really the structured reality of Love Island UK through the lens of professional wrestling. Yeah, which sounds really weird until you realize how perfectly they fit with one another. But before we do that, we should introduce ourselves because we forgot to do that. We're so excited. We're so excited. You worked really hard and I also helped. Yes. So my name is Ben and with me, as always, is my partner in podcasting and life, Becca. Hey, this always feels so weird to me. I don't know what to say. Hey! There we go. That'll do. That'll do. So, how did we come up with this idea in the first place? So, years ago, when I was a librarian, I used to review children's books for various trade magazines. And one of the series they sent me was about professional wrestling. And I knew nothing about professional wrestling. So I had to ask Ben if the books were accurate. And he got all excited because he loved wrestling as a kid. And so when we... As a kid? And also as now. And so it just seamlessly happened that when we started watching this, we started referring to people as heels and faces, which are wrestling terms I learned. Yes. Also, I think the concept of kayfabe, another wrestling term, is very, very important to understanding Love Island. Kayfabe is basically the idea that the audience is in on something being fake, right? So it's that the producers, the performers, the audience, they pretend that all these fictional events in a fictional reality are actually true, right? Everybody's kind of in on pretending together. I don't know exactly when people first started saying kayfabe, but it does come from professional wrestling. Actually. Actually. Actually, there are some guesses. Pro wrestling can trace some of its stylistic origins back to carnivals, where the term kayfabe is thought to have originated as carny slang for protecting the secrets of the business. So it fits right in. The term kayfabe itself may ultimately originate from the pig Latin form of fake, akefe, or the phrase be fake. And to me, it always sounds kind of like fabricated, kayfabe, fabricated. So again, kayfabe may also derive from another trick used by traveling carnies 
With money tight, they would call home collect and ask for K Fabian. This was code letting the people at home know that they had made it safely to the next town without paying for a phone call. That's uh, very, very clever. I don't know how true that is, but that's what I read on the internet. So it's got to be at least a little true. Yeah. Well, someone thinks it's true if it's on the internet. How kayfabe really works is that, you know, the actors basically stay in character in public. So in wrestling, when Hulk Hogan and Macho Man were having a feud in the fake scripted drama of professional wrestling, they'd pretend to hate each other if they were ever seen together in public, like at a bar after the show or something like that. And I think kayfabe is really essential to Love Island. We in the audience, I mean, we know that the situation is artificial. We know that the producers are prompting conversations and that they engineer certain things to happen to create conflict. That's really a lot of the fun of the show. Okay, but to be fair, there have been some very recent videos with the season six cast members. One of the things they're asked is how many of the conversations are, you know, quote unquote, set up by the producers. And pretty unanimously, they say that none of them are directly contrived. Sometimes the directors play with the timing because they can't get everything at once. They would encourage a conversation that would have or should have occurred anyway, like the Amber and Joanna drinks in season five, or pretty much everything John Clark did in season one. If we get too wrapped up on what's quote unquote real and what's quote unquote fake, that ruins the fun. And then it starts to feel very conspiracy theory. And that sucks. I just want to watch beautiful people do silly things. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't really bother me that parts of the show are structured. And I think we see frequently them putting two women together who don't want to talk to each other. I think that happens I don't know, multiple seasons, right? Don't Naomi and Jess have to go somewhere together in season one? Yeah, they do it all the time. And to be fair, it's because women will be mad passive aggressively and everything will seem fine on the surface, but they will be hating each other and that becomes a clubhouse cancer. So it has to happen. Yeah. Also, how about, um, remember in season two when they bring Malin in by surprise when Terry and Scott are having drinks? Right. On a rooftop. Oh, yeah. That was huge. And obviously fake, but very fun. So obviously contestants know that it's not real. Also, they're basically on the show to get famous. It's easier to fall in love on the outside, on the quote unquote outside, than inside a villa with a small handful of people. Right. But the environment of Love Island combines with the contestants desire to get famous to basically bring up all these feelings and emotions. And it's not really clear all the time who's faking their feelings versus who's just kind of caught up in being on Love Island and then the kind of heightened emotional state that you're in. So two things. Number one, not everyone is looking to get famous. I don't think it's fair to just assume that about everybody. Plus, a lot of them already are famous. Molly May was already big. Curtis was already big. Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that they're all looking to get famous, but I think that the majority of them are primarily on there for fame. Fair enough. And then also, too, there are all kinds of lasting relationships that come out of fishbowl environments, right? Colleges, workplaces, birthright trips. I mean, that's the purpose of a birthright trip, isn't it? Yeah. To get you to go to Israel, bang another Jew, and... multiply the tribe that is that is the point primarily though the relationships in the villa remind me of being a teenager at sleepaway camp right a few people have genuine emotional connections and if a lot of people have summer romances and that's okay too 
Plus, everybody has the emotional maturity of a middle schooler, so it's not too surprising most of the relationships don't work out. That is so true, and I didn't mean to imply that people are not also there for love and to have genuine connections, because I think that that is true for a lot of the contestants. Not all of them, but I do think I do think a lot of them want to come out of it with some friendships and possibly a romantic relationship. And but it's not called Friend Island, Ben. That's right. It's not called Friend Island. Even the contestants who get lost in the excitement of Love Island sort of know that the emotions they're experiencing might not be totally genuine, though. You know, how how much was Curtis really faking it with Amy in season five? Was he being insincere the whole time? I think he genuinely liked her. I mean, did you think he saw it kind of like as his job to find someone to couple up with? Well, you're you have to couple up regardless of how you feel about the other people. So, yeah, I mean, as a contestant, it's kind of your job. So you do think that he actually genuinely liked her at some point? In a romantic way? Yeah. I think he was open to giving it a shot in the beginning. And I think they got along really well. And it didn't turn into a romantic spark for him. But I think he genuinely liked her as a person. And how they end their story on the show is quite beautiful. They're hugging and crying and saying they're going to they're gonna recover and then be best friends. Right. Yeah. No, it is a nice ending to the story on the show. And it redeems him a little bit. It does. A little bit. You know, what's also interesting is Curtis, this isn't his first reality show. So I don't know, maybe he planned to dump her at Casa Amor from the very beginning. I think the larger point is that it doesn't really matter how you answer those questions. As long as he is maintaining kayfabe, from my perspective, it doesn't matter whether his feelings for Amy were genuine or not, as long as he pretends that they were genuine, right? I care if they were real or fake his feelings only in the fabricated story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. As long as we're on the same page here. All I need is for him to pretend like they might've been real to make me believe they might've been real. I mean, I sometimes I like to say love Island where most of the relationships are fake, but most of the feelings are real. Yeah. That's good. You're Uh, smart. Sometimes, sometimes, even if he said that he never liked her, but coupled up with her to stay at the villa, that's actually also good because it's still kayfabe because the idea that people want to be at the villa you know contestants want to stay at the villa to have a good time and also to find love the only problem i would have is if curtis goes on twitter or instagram and tells people that he planned it all that amy was incidental like it didn't matter could have been any of the contestants and he just had a script going in and that's what he was going to do because you know i don't want to hear that i don't think anyone wants to hear that no one wants to hear that yeah you you want to believe that there is some some element of sincerity or insincerity but on the stage right we all are pretending together right yeah yes and right we're all pretending that these are these fabulous love stories and some of them are some of them are most of them aren't right And in a really big coincidence, there has been a kayfabe scandal recently involving Shauna. So right as we were starting to write this episode, Shauna revealed that she had a boyfriend going into Love Island season six. Did she do that on purpose? No, it was an accident. And then she was called out on social media. So then she basically later admitted it. First, she tried to deny it. And then she 
later admitted it, I believe. It turns out that she's with this guy. They were together for about a year before she was ever on Love Island. He was somehow involved in running her social media accounts, even when she was on the show. People were pressing her on this. And then, you know, she admitted that looking for romance on Love Island was all a sham, that her only motivation was money and fame, and that her top goal was to buy her mom a house, and she makes no apologies for it. She shouldn't have said anything. Well, this is what I think is so interesting, is because buying your mom a house, that's actually very noble. That's a nice thing to do. You know, a normal person hears that and would think Shauna was a good person for doing that. Well, she still is, but we didn't need to know about it. But Love Island fans, right? They're really pissed. And I mean that in the American way, right? Not the British one. That one's more fun, though. Yeah. And why are they so angry? I'm saying it's because Shauna broke kayfabe. She broke the cardinal rule of reality television. Everyone knows that Love Island is fake in the same way that professional wrestling is fake. It's probably actually a little less fake than professional wrestling because the outcomes uh, in professional wrestling are planned. And I don't believe that the votes are necessarily planned in Love Island. You know, we want the emotions that we see in the contestants to be real, right? Even if they're not really in love, even if they're just kind of caught up in Love Island, we want to think that they might be in love and we want them to think that they might be in love, right? Yeah, that's that's key, I think. Yeah, even if we know on some level that they're faking it. Well, when you say caught up in Love Island, though, I'm not sure if you mean that because they're smushed in this environment that's so conducive to falling in love, do you mean that they think they're falling in love? Because that's cool. But, of course, you know, that's not what people are saying when they're mad at, at Shauna. They don't say that, oh, we're mad because... You're breaking our the spell of Love Island, right? They talk about all of the hate that Callum and Molly got on social media after Callum dumped Shauna, who was a fan favorite. Ooh, yeah, that must have right? been really bad. Well, they say all the bullying was her fault, and some uh, were going so far as to say that she actually planned for Callum to dump her at Casa more so that she could play the jilted lover like Georgia in season four or Amber in season five. You know, she did have a good one-liner ready for the post-Casa Amor recoupling, but that does seem like a little bit of a stretch to me. I think she was prepared no matter what Callum did. I don't think congrats, hun, is a one-liner that she had prepared. I think that's just what came out of her mouth at the moment. I don't want to say you're giving her too much credit. I'm just no one needs to sit and write that line. I mean, that's basically the verbal equivalent of the Nancy Pelosi clap. Congrats, hon. I'm wondering so many things now, though. Was she being prangy on purpose to drive Callum away? Yeah, I, that's interesting. Was he in on it? That would be even more interesting. Did he, or did he at least pick up on anything? See, that maybe, yeah. Or is he as dumb and beautiful as he looks? I actually, on the rewatch of season six that we're doing now, and now we've seen these episodes two, three times, I was wondering if Callum notices some weird things going on with Shauna, especially in light of what's going on. You know, the truth is we don't know how much the negative comments on social media really affected Callum and Molly, really because we don't really know the sincerity of their relationship. Who, Callum and Molly? Yeah, I mean, they're still... Sort of together, but, you know, Love Island is famous for having couples that stay together after the show for 
money-making reasons, right? They just stay together through COVID. Yeah. I think they're pretty solid. Okay. All right. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. A lot of people from season six are still pretty solid. Yeah. You know, people being concerned about Callum and Molly, right? I think that's actually part of the whole kayfabe phenomenon, right? Because, you know, maybe they knew Shauna was a liar the entire time. Maybe they were okay with Shauna lying the whole time. Yeah. Look, anyone who harasses anyone online is an asshole. Yeah, that's a problem with the show. Right? The concern over Callum and Molly, I think it's more concern over the characters of Callum and Molly, right? The, the Callum and Molly we see on the show because they're the only ones we can be concerned about. We don't know the real Callum or the real Molly. We know the versions that were presented to us, right? And I know I'm getting a little meta here. I think we saw the real Callum. I don't know how much more to Callum there really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless he's like a two-ply wet wipe. Like, I think we've seen there all there is to see. And I don't think he's a bad fellow or anything. And But also, like, if they do their job and they maintain kayfabe, they help keep up the illusion, we should never know the real Callum, the real Molly, right? Those, those characters are the real them, in a sense, for us. Yeah. Anyway, I had an idea for a game that we could play about kayfabe. I'm calling it Dream Scheme or In Between. Ooh. Yeah. Is this a good mythical morning game? Oh, I yeah, I guess kind of. Yeah. Well, the name is... Is it's very... Is very homage-y. much like that. So I will name a relationship from the show. And I want you to tell me whether you think it was a dream, meaning... Both people thought they were into each other, but they were fooling themselves, right? It was mm-hmm. just a dream. Or was it a scheme where both people were consciously faking it the whole time for the purpose of the show? Dun, dun, dun. Or tell me if it's in between, meaning one of the two had feelings and the other one was faking it. Ooh. My quick examples of each. Max and Jess in season one are kind of a classic dream couple. I think both of them thought they were falling in love with each other, that they had feelings for each other, might have been more a product of being in the Love Island environment. I also think that we can say Jack and Danny were a scheme. Some people might disagree with that. I know that might be a little controversial. No, I totally agree. They were way too virginal to be a real couple. Right, and... Now we can actually plug the Discord server. If, oh, yeah, we have one, guys yeah, and so gals. We can and, talk about it if you want. And comrades. Yeah, for anybody who's at the Do Bits Society level on Patreon or better, you can join our Discord and we can talk. We're getting really bored talking to each other, so... Yes, more people to talk about Love Island. Also, we have a Twitter. And again, it's just the two of us talking to like five fans out there. So follow us on Twitter. Uh, yes, we're at LBLI podcast. And I'm at LBLI Peng because I'm a Peng sort, baby. That's right. That's right. So anyway, so Max and Jess will be the dream couple that I mentioned. Jack and Danny, I think they were a scheme. And then Anna and Jordan from Ooh. season five. That's the epitome of the in-between couple. Jordan was faking it the whole time, obviously. Anna was into Jordan. Fuck it, Jordan. Yeah. Fuck that guy. He yeah. sucks. He's, he's bad. So I'm going to try to stick to couples where there is some room for debate. Okay. 
And I'm not going to include any couples that are still together, obviously, or that were in serious relationships after the endorsements dried up. And I also won't mention couples like Jordan and Anna where there's a really obvious answer, right? Okay. okay. Go ahead. So here we go. So one from each season, I think. Okay. Season one, Hulk and Zoe. Dream. Dream. I want to think dream because they had some of the best scenes in that show when they were getting freaky. I think the big blue spider. Killing the spiders. Yes. Will forever haunt me. I'd like to think so, but they're a dream. I think I can definitely see that. I have my suspicions about Hulk. I think he may have been faking it a little bit. I'll give you that. Zoe, I think, was his third or fourth choice. Yeah. But... I don't think they ever thought they were in love. I don't think they ever thought that this was going to be a forever relationship. But I do think that they were both into it for the period of time that it lasted. I think Zoe maybe was genuinely interested in Hulk in a way that Hulk wasn't. I think that she was seriously interested personally. And you know, she's one of the few on the show who really has never tried to spin her being on the show into social media influencer status or fame or anything like that. You know, she pretty much disappeared. Some other people have disappeared too, but good for her. Yeah, no, absolutely. Live your best life, Zozo. Yeah, that's what I would want to do. Okay, how about season two, Scott and Katie? In between. In between. So who's faking it and who is catching feelings, even if they're caught up in Love Island? I think Scott caught feelings and I think Katie is just a manipulative psycho drama queen. Yeah, I think that you are right here. She's still one of my favorites to watch, but the girl was not right. I I think you're about right here. I could also see Scott faking it and this being a totally fake relationship except for the fact of that really corny thing he did of the how when he asked her to be his girlfriend that was a very cringy moment and I don't think anybody faking it would have thought of that unless the producers made him do it that's possible but in season two there's just not as much hand of the producer no season two is more of a shit show than season one yeah it's true. I mean, the, the producers, you do see their hands in season two. And when you do see it, it's quite heavy. Right. But um, it doesn't seem like they're intervening quite as frequently. Season two is my favorite, I think. Yeah, I, I go back and forth between three and two. Because, you know, the thing about two is I hate so much of the cast. Yeah. You know, I just I just despise them as people. And they're but, the ones who made it interesting, though. Yeah, it has some of the best episodes. Well, I do... You know, Sophie is a great character. Oh, you know, I love Sophie. Sophie. We're going to talk about Sophie and Mike and Caroline in a separate episode because we want to give them the respect that they deserve, which is why we haven't mentioned it when we're talking about bullying. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Thanks for mentioning that, Beck. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to the funsies. Yes. Back to the funsies. Season three. What do you think about Gabby and Marcel? I think in between also. Yep, I would agree with you there. So, well, who do you think is faking it? Do we even need to say it? Marcel, because he's in the Blazing Squad. He slept with over 300 women. He cheated on her on vacation. I I thought that was a really sad, but also very funny ending. Yeah, to postscript to their arc on Love Island. Yeah. I do think that Gabby was caught up. I, I think she caught real feelings. So let's go. Season four. Yes. 
Okay, this is a great one. Georgia and Sam Bird. I think they veered between all three. I think they hit all three at different points. Okay, now, all right, I want to hear more about this. So I do think that at some point they genuinely thought that they liked each other after they got split up and were still in the house. Mm -hmm. I think they thought that they liked each other. The forbidden love thing, that's hot. Yeah. Uh, But I also think that she was using him. At first? Yes, at first. And then I also think that he was using her. Yeah. To stay on because she was dynamic and interesting and he was sort of a potato. So, yeah, I kind of felt that he was more into her than she kind of caught up and he kind of lost interest a little bit, but faked it. Yeah. And then when they were split up, it looked to me like she was more into him. Yes. Right. When they made them split up. And then he got back into her, of course, when it was, yes, forbidden. I, that's a good analysis. I like that a lot. That's that's good. You're welcome. All right. So season five. This is one we have to talk about. Okay. Curtis and Mora. You know I had to go there. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I think either scheme or in between. All right. Well, we got to pick one. What are you going to go with? Can it be both? I think it started as in between. And then I think it flip-flopped. Okay. Tell me more. Opposites. Okay. So I think in the beginning, Mora was really into him and he was sort of lukewarm about her, but she's so charismatic and beautiful that he eventually got sucked in. But then she sort of, she started seeing him for who he was. And I think she wasn't as into it. Although they stayed together for a while. So I guess she was into it. He just never seemed as into her as she was into him, even when he was really into her. It just never seemed like the way she was into him. Yeah, well, I sort of agree. I think it was a scheme. I think that both of them were faking it. I think they were both faking the romantic part. I think that they were both attracted to each other. The physical attraction was real, but the romantic part, totally fake. Both of them knew the score. Both of them knew that, if they were going to have a shot at winning or really staying on the show for the rest of the season, that they needed to couple up. I mean, Curtis had had more options, but his best option was Mora, and certainly Mora's best option was Curtis. And they were cute together. It was a fun story. Yeah. So I'm not sad. Oh, yeah. No, me too. But I think it was totally fake, but I love it, right? Yeah. So, okay, now season six. Season six, I think they're aren't as many kind of debatable ones, but um, here's one, Demi and Luke. Scheme. Scheme. Super scheme. I think Demi was really into Nas. Yeah. But when he came back with Eva, I think she just had to stay on the show and people liked her. So it was a good choice for Luke M. And he's a nice guy. Like he'll do what he's told. Yeah. Yeah. He goes with the flow. Yeah. Super nice guy. The two Lukes, both very, very nice. That's, Part of the reason why season six is so wholesome, I think. And slightly boring, but we haven't gotten to the good part yet. Yes. We've gotten through the fun parts. We haven't gotten to the good part. I absolutely agree. Totally a scheme. Hey, you are listening to a special bonus episode of Little Bit Leave It. We're releasing this one to the general public, but normally you'd have to support us on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash little bit leave it and join, sign up starting at $2 per month 
for bonus content uh, with every single episode. For episodes like these, you'll need to be a member of the Do Bits Society at the $5 level or above. That's patreon.com slash littlebitleaveit. Yeah, we've got a March Madness special coming up in March. March. Uh, That should be really exciting. We're going to have the hotties, the hustlers, the Londoners and the Essexers battle it out for the true Love Island championship. Yeah. Champion of what? I don't know, but it's going to be fun. And if you want to vote and participate in the polls and help decide who the ultimate champions of Love Island are in our March Madness tournament, yeah, you'd have to be a uh, patron at the do bits level or higher. Why would you say champions? There's only one champion. There can be only one. Right, I guess that's true. Yes. Okay, as long as you're aware of that, there'll only be one. There we will even only have be some one. we have some play-in games we need some help on, so come on. Okay, so I feel like I brought up heels and faces in the very beginning and then we never actually talked about them or what they are. So can we take a step back and explain it for the people like me who don't care or don't know much about wrestling? Which yeah. is how I'm gonna say it every time, by the way, wrestling. So, yes, let's, that's a good idea. Faces are the good guys. Uh, that doesn't actually mean you like them necessarily, but they are the characters who are supposedly on the side of moral righteousness. Like Liberty Bell from Glow? Yes, like Liberty Bell from Glow. There we go. And that moral righteousness is usually defined principally by their opposition to the heels, the bad guys. Uh, And their badness is self-evident, right? And like Zoya. Stupid American. Exactly. So no one over the age of 10 ever thought that Hulk Hogan was cool. Oops, they didn't? No, it's always way more fun to root for Rowdy Roddy Piper, right? I don't know. Exploding in mock anger is way more entertaining than telling kids to stay in school and eat their vitamins. Fair enough. You know, Ric Flair, way cooler than Sting. Wait, wait, wait. Sting is way cooler. He's a rock star. He sings about prostitutes and he has hella tantric sex. That is not the Sting I'm talking about. I'm talking about Sting, the wrestler who had dumb face paint. And uh, Ric Flair is the wrestler who whose whole thing was he. Woo! Oh. Woo! Yeah. And Shawn Michaels, cooler than Bret the Hitman Hart. You know, I've got Shawn Michaels t-shirt. He looks like wrestling George Clooney from the mullet days. Yeah, I I could see that. Anyway, in Love Island, not all of the faces are likable or entertaining, but the most memorable and beloved characters in the series are the ones who I think they get to take what I call the hero's journey. Each season has one person, I think, who gets to do that. And that is basically... Determined by a combination of circumstance and decisions made by the show's producers, right? And how they frame narratives and construct characters. We've talked a lot about this between the two of us, not on the podcast. Yeah, it beats regular dinner conversation about life and the outside world and things. Yeah, especially these days. So anyway, I think we're on the same page about who these people are. I'll probably find something to argue with you about spontaneously sure and and if you don't i'll try to do the same so season one it is it's jess yes i feel like i know jess if she was from staten island she would smoke newports wear huge hoodies 
have two keys on like 35 keychains, which she keeps in her hoodie pocket. And she would have a ton of shit hanging from her rearview mirror. And I, I know this girl. Uh, I really felt for her. I wouldn't like be friends with her, but I would be friends with someone who's friends with her. So she'd always kind of be around. Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. I knew people like Jess when I was younger, you know, teenager, young adult. Yeah, 100%, as Shanice would say. Oh, 100%. So what do you think about season two? I am going to say it's Adam the Wrestler. He's more of an anti-hero, though. Yes, I agree. And he is also the only guy out of all six seasons who really gets the hero's journey treatment from the producers. And I think it's part of why season two feels so different. I really thought Dr. Alex was going to be the hero of season four. But his arc flatlined. No response to Epi or shocking. I will take my degree from the Meredith Grey School of Medicine and Daddy Issues now. I I agree. I think they were trying to set up Alex as the hero. Then first, you know, there was the blow up with Ellie. And, you know, they tried to frame Dr. Alex as the good guy in that situation, even though maybe he wasn't. And then later with the Alex and Alex stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He really uh, ruined their plan. Anyway. Season three, it's Camilla. Do I even need to say anything more? It's Camilla. It's always been Camilla. Camilla is the best and that's it. I don't want to hear it. Don't argue with me. Don't at me. Camilla's the best. Keep her in and she's definitely one of the most popular all time, I feel like. And they're having a baby. Maybe they already had it. I don't know. I'd say the only people who might be more popular than her would be Jess and, well, we'll talk about the other person in a minute. So season four... Laura is ends up being the hero of season four. The unfortunately nicknamed old Laura. Yes, old Laura. That is so sad. Who was a geezer at twenty nine? Oh wait, that's an American geezer, not a British, <laughs> not a British geezer. Laura, you know, an interesting choice for the hero, and I think it's a good choice in the sense that a lot of people who watch Love Island maybe could identify with with Laura's situation. So Laura was older than everybody in the house. She had a real career. I don't want to say she was like Camilla smart, but she obviously had a good head on her shoulders. She was always kind. She was friends to the girls who were 20. I don't want to say like a mentor because that has a very corporate sound, but I would put her as a mentor in womanhood to a lot of these younger girls. And even though all these horrible things kept happening to her, she always had her head held up. Laura owned that season. Yeah, what I also think in retrospect makes it even more impressive is that it doesn't seem like the other women in the villa actually liked her very much. You know, when you think about how she's treated by the other women, for instance, when Megan gets Wes, and I'm not necessarily blaming Megan for this, but what's interesting is that Samira knew what Meg and Wes were up to and did not tell Laura when Laura asked, which I thought was interesting, right? That's point number one. Point number two, obviously, is Georgia kissing New Jack when she's supposed to be Laura's quote-unquote best friend in the villa at this point. This is not a point against Laura. I think it's in favor of her that she was so impressive despite how she was treated. She was treated better than Jess, though, which we'll get into. Yes, Absolutely. Oh, of course. I mean, nobody gets worse treatment than Jess 
who is one of my favorites of all time, obviously. So anyway, let's get into another one of my all-time favorites, season five. The hero of season five, surprisingly... Amber. Amber. And I don't think that was the plan from the beginning. But of course, when Michael dumps her for Joanna at Casa Amor... <laughs> yeah. Then she becomes extremely sympathetic. They were a huge scheme, BT dubs. Yeah. Yeah. They did not even like each other. I agree. Joanna, Michael, totally fake couple. Michael and Amber were a dream. Yes. Michael and Amber were a dream. It's just funny because Amber is pretty awful the first half. And then you still feel bad for her when Michael comes back with Joanna. And then all of a sudden she's learned and grown and is very sympathetic for the second half. Well, she's not uniformly bad in the first half. I think she does show some inklings or she shows the beginnings maybe of some change. You know, she certainly is very unsympathetic at points. She's a loyal friend. Yep. She's a loyal, I don't want to say girlfriend, but she was loyal to Michael. Yeah. So she's not all bad. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was wondering, who do you think the producers were setting up to be the hero in Amy. season five. Yeah. Amy. Yeah. Amy was the most normal looking. Amy has a bomb Twitter, by the way, and you should follow her. She's very smart. And she's also what we would call a Democrat, at least by what she says on there. So if you don't want to see any bullshit in Dubai or any racist nonsense, and you want someone who's not selling shit, she promotes herself, but that's okay. Right. The rest of what she says is like smart and interesting. Good. So follow Amy. Good. Team Amy. One of the good ones. Yes. Good. Then season six, I'd say Shauna is the, you know, is the protagonist of season six. I'm going to do it again. A hundred percent, except not entirely. So maybe like 85%, but go ahead. Well, so what's also interesting. So Shauna is the only one of the people that we've mentioned who doesn't actually make it to the end of the show. Though, if she had chosen to fake another relationship... Or if Luke M. had responded to her advances and left Demi hanging, she would have made it to the final. Do you think Luke M. knew she was faking? Do I think that Luke M. knew that Shauna was faking? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. It's so weird because it feels somewhat like the producers pushed Luke M. and Demi together. Yeah, they right? totally did. And maybe Shauna was trying to weasel in. It's, it's very strange. And that's why the last week or so of season six feels a little anticlimactic. It's nice, the end of season six, but with Shauna's narrative wrapped up, you know, we just don't get the same payoff as in other seasons. Jess, Demi, Luke M, they're kind of poor substitutes and we just don't have as much invested in them. All right, this is going to shock you. I think Shawnice is a great supplement to Shauna. Shawnice was vile in the beginning and Shauna ruled the house. But after Casa Amor, Sean is kind of irrelevant outside her friendship with Paige. But as she crashed and burned, Shawnice went from, and I wrote this down because I loved it, spurnable to loved. And she got to show her good side. She totally blossoms when her romance with Luke T blossoms. We got to enjoy watching her just as Shauna bottomed. I, I hear what you're saying. And I just found the Shawnee arc and the whole Shawnee and Luke T romance to be so contrived. Uh, I know it's real. I just, I found them so corny. 
but they're corny together. They're both corny people and they found each other. That princess scavenger hunt was the stupidest fucking thing I ever saw, but it was clever and creative and she loved it. And so two people like that should be together. Just because I am the least romantic person on earth, you're just used to me. Yeah, I'm used to you. And and I also just want to contrast. I hate flowers. <laughs> flowers are bullshit. Do not ever buy me flowers. That's right. Yes, I, my wife does not want me to ever buy her flowers. They're depressing. They're depressing. Yes. What I think is an interesting contrast is how in season six, we've got this really corny thing going on. Could you ever envision any of the guys in season one or season two even season three doing the kind of corny romantic stuff that I mean as far as Luke T goes and I know Kim does a kind of similar thing yeah with the I was phones. just gonna say Kim in the cell phone hunt right? doesn't Marcel do something goopy for Gabby yeah maybe season three is when it starts happening but still I feel like the evolution no think- there's a lot of toxic masculinity in seasons one and two and then season three Kim brought his like sparkle and also his romance with Chris I'm not even going to say bromance. Like, Kevin, Chris, man, I felt that in my heart. I'm not saying it's a gay thing, but that was very palpable. That was probably like the truest romance of that season. I think that deserves to be honored a little bit. The whole tone swung with season three. Those were some decent fellas. Yeah, it was the first time we actually had, yeah, some guys who were going to be very vulnerable with each other. I mean, there is, again, increasingly more kind of wholesomeness as at least season four and season six, right, are quite wholesome. I don't know. Well, six, I guess. Six. Six is derided. Four, as, yeah, four is not. No. no, six is derided as being boring, but it's also sweet. And sometimes you need that. Four is boring. Six is sweet. Yeah. And four is not boring all the way through. It just has parts that are boring. It has too many people who are boring. Yeah. I agree. Anyway, we got a little off track there. As we do. As we tend to do. So we have our faces. What about our heels? You are listening to a very, very special Little Bit Leave It. There's no drugs and there's no divorce, but there is a whole lot of content going across the six seasons. If you want more of this nonsense, you're going to have to become a subscriber where you can listen to more inane rambling for only $5 a month. Who could beat that? To sign up, patreon.com slash little bit leave it. You're listening to a bonus episode of Little Bit Leave It. Normally, this will only be for patrons at the Dubit Society level or higher. You can sign up at patreon.com slash littlebitleaveit. Heels are the bad guys, but you can like them. And a lot of these people on this our list, we like for entertainment value, not as humans. There are some really bad humans on here. Yes, there are some very, very bad humans. That's the thing. One of the funny things I think about people getting angry with the Love Islanders, the former contestants, doing all these terrible things, whether it's being jerks on social media, behaving irresponsibly during the pandemic. These are not very good people, a lot of them. Except Camilla. Yeah. No, there are some are definitely good people, but a lot of them are not. And yeah, looking at you, Lucy Donlin, with your racial micro and macro aggressions. Yeah. And I think 
Um, Luke M, dump her ass. I mean, you could do better. Molly May and Tommy seem very entitled and shallow and really bad, not good people. At least Molly May is from some of the stuff on. So, you know, it's, of course, it's social media, but she certainly promotes herself as, as somebody who is not very sensitive. Tommy is a puppy man to spawn all puppy men. And I will defend Tommy in certain arenas. I will defend Tommy's goodness until shown otherwise. Yeah, no, Tommy is not a heel. No question. But and whether someone's a heel or a face you know, it has something to do with how good they are. And we are, but we are going to talk about some pretty awful people here because we want to talk about who the worst, really the best heels, the worst people on Love Island ever were. And when we say the worst people, we don't, we don't mean their off screen antics. We're talking about the characters they played on the show. Absolutely. We are only limiting ourselves to the universe of the show. Because there are plenty of people who were crappy offline and off the island and nice. Like Marcel is a crappy person, but he was good on Love Island. He was a good guy. Right. That's a great example. I think what we should do is we'll each pick maybe three people. I hope it's only three because that's as many as I wrote. Yes, three people. And we will present our case for why somebody is the ultimate Love Island heel. Can I go first? The ultimate villain. Yes, you can go first. Awesome. Okay, so John Clark. From season one. Oh. John was the face and voice of season one. Yes. It was raw. It was way less scripted. And it had almost no interpersonal prodding from the producers as we saw. And also as we heard from alumni. So John filled that role. I think it's why the producers got so involved as the seasons went on. Because nothing would have happened if John hadn't been there. He had good qualities, right? That's what kept him interesting. He was funny. He comforted and supported his friends. He expressed his emotions very memorably when he thought he loved Hannah. I mean, I feel like a rainbow. I feel like a unicorn. It's one of my favorite lines from all of Love Island. Right? And the proposal was weird, unnecessary, and totally romantic, much like John. And he got people to hash out and settle fights, and that was good. But he started as many fights as he ended. Right? He was rude and disgusting in the store when he and Hannah went to go shop for dinner. I want to call him an ugly American, but... But, yeah, he's not actually American. Right. He got mad at Hannah for flashing her very well-publicized tits at the other girls during the naked butler party. This one, I'm willing to give him a tiny bit of leeway on, but he blew it so out of proportion and was so horrible and degrading to her that he gets none of those points. Yep. For where I could see a guy being annoyed at his girlfriend for that she was right she wasn't even pointing it at the guys and also she gets paid for those tits so it's not like no one's seen them anyway the worst part is obviously how he treated jess and not only that but he was the ringleader of getting the other guys to treat her like trash if he had been kind to her josh and lewis would have been kinder to her too john is the ultimate heel because he was the first and he paved the way for future asshats like terry and adam c That is a very, very strong case. Fuck those guys. Yeah. I think my first one, I'm going to go with Emma from season two. Yeah. So she is clearly the ultimate Love Island heel. Her character has all of the classic traits of a good villain, 
and she is constantly pushing boundaries and buttons from when she enters, and she completely transforms the dynamic of the house in about a week, right? That is impressive. First, the fact that she is someone's ex, and an original's ex in particular. And somebody in a popular relationship. Yep, exactly. It already establishes her as someone who might cause drama, and... As viewers, we're also not inclined to be sympathetic to her when she first arrives, right? Because Tom and Sophie were just past another one of their arguments, and I think they seem to be back on track, only for Tom's ex to show up. So I can still remember that look on Tom's face, you know, and he kind of puts his hand and says he's rubbing his forehead. Yeah, he knows she's a life ruiner. Yes. You know, I remember at the time not understanding why he was freaking out so much, Because, you know, if he didn't want to get back with her, why is he so worried? You know, he could just stay with Sophie. No one can make him get back with her. So, and I assume that's why she came on the show, right? To get back with Tom. But Tom, who knew her better, knew better, right? She was there to destroy him and anyone he loved. And she proceeded to do just that in two weeks. Before she did it, She helped Terry complete his transformation from boring douche to repulsive dirtbag. Strong words. Yeah. And they were an evil power couple. Pairing up with the alpha male in the villa was essential to her plan and is another classic heel move. So she wasn't there just to break up Tom and Sophie. She was there to break them up, turn their friends against them, and get them off the show. Tom and Sophie were the only couple that could have conceivably challenged Nathan and Kara for the crown. And I think if they had made it to the final, they might have won. Because that on-again, off-again nature of the relationship was the drama that really drove the storyline for a lot of the season. And we saw how Kem and Amber won with a similar storyline in the next summer. Obviously, Kem is a lot more likable than Tom, but I think Sophie is kind of similarly, you know, really, really likable, more likable than Amber anyway. So in the span of just two weeks... Emma enters the house. Tom and Sophie are forced to break up with one of them leaving the villa. And then Emma turns the entire house against Sophie and Sophie leaves as a result. Emma clearly takes a lot of pleasure in it. What makes her even more obnoxious is her sense of entitlement and Terry's insistence that she's somehow mature despite all evidence to the contrary. She's a narcissistic 19-year-old brat who forced people to watch her have sex. She never makes any attempt to gain the audience's sympathy And it's not surprising that she and Terry get voted off as soon as they have to face consequences for their behavior. Taken together, her persona is almost like a cartoon villain in how she's edited. I don't think there's any contestant who impacts the villa dynamic through sheer force of will like Emma. And that is why she is the ultimate Love Island heel. Ooh, that was good. She sucked. Yes, she sucks. She sucks. I do think that Terry also is arguably... The biggest heel in that season because he started even before she came on. The whole Malin thing was really disgusting. Yeah, he is definitely a really big heel. But like I said, she's like almost like a cartoon villain in how evil she is. And she just checks all the boxes. She rides his douchebag lightning to the top. That's right. Exactly. Okay. So is it my turn now? Your turn. All right. Let's stick with the ladies. Okay. So Georgia Steele is not loyal. Georgia Steele is the ultimate heel because she lies and sells out her friends. And that's not loyalty, babes. 
I do feel badly a little bit for putting her on here because even though she was annoying the whole time, she was really mature for 20 years old, especially compared to Katie, Amber Davies, Miss GB. She slept outside with Rosie after Adam mugged her off. She really did like Josh and not only stayed loyal to him, much to my surprise, but she took him coming back with Kaz like a champ. Like we were waiting for her to kick off and she really held it together. And then the I'm loyal, babe monster was born and it was downhill from there. The who kissed who with Jack was utterly against girl code and Love Island code. Did she forget that everything is recorded and everybody talks? Did she think everyone would just believe her because she is loyal? Laura was nothing but a good friend and mentor in womanhood to her, like I said. And for her to dig in after being called out was to dig in her social standing grave. She hooked up with Sam just to stay in the house. Everyone knew it was fake, including Sam. So much so that neither the public nor the other Islanders voted to keep her and Sam in the villa. They were done with her nonsense. And so what does this cotton-headed ninny muggins do when faced with the decision to split up with Sam and stay or stay with him and go? First, she tells Caroline to leave her alone when pressed for their decision. Like, this is TV, Georgia. We don't have time for a tantrum. Also, like, Caroline, don't yell at Caroline. Second, while the decision to stay was mostly Sam's preference, I can only think it's because he knew that she was using him. Like, even Danny, who had the purest heart in the villa, lost her temper with this bullshit and wouldn't speak to Georgia. And then let's not forget about the nonsense, totally unnecessary nonsense at the reunion. Again, her loyalty is questioned with receipts and she just stands by her lies. If she'd been willing to apologize to anyone at any point for any of her sins, she probably wouldn't be on this list. Georgia is the ultimate heel because of her total dedication to hypocrisy and self-serving falsehoods. Okay, that is fairly convincing. She's complicated, right? Georgia is complicated. So, okay, I will go ahead and stick with the girls. I'm going to take it back to season one, like you did. I'm going to go with Naomi. Well, that's pretty inarguable, but I would like to hear your take on it. So, if Jess is the Hulk Hogan of Love Island, right, and I would argue that she is, then Naomi is Andre the Giant. Over the course of her stay in the villa in season one, Naomi establishes that she's more interested in preventing Jess from being in a successful couple than in actually being in a successful couple herself. She stops at nothing in her pursuit of being the alpha female in the house. And if she hadn't gone after Max to really kick Jess while she was down, Naomi might have succeeded. John had poisoned the house against Jess for the most part, Hannah ironically being one of the few exceptions, but... When Naomi dumped the extremely popular Josh to steal Jess's man for a second time, she crossed a line. She wasn't just aggressive, she established a lasting Love Island archetype that would be resurrected with varying degrees of success by Megan in Season 4, Arabella in Season 5, and Rebecca may be the most successful in Season 6. The worst Rebecca. Yes. Naomi was ruthless in her attempts to destroy Jess. And like any good heel, she eventually reaps what she sows. The public never gives her a chance to couple up with Max, 
and she's eliminated with supporting heel Travis. But for three weeks, she pulls Josh's strings and revels in creating problems for Jess. I'm not sure if there's anyone I've rooted against as much as Naomi. She was unapologetically conniving. I cheered when she was dumped, and not just because I despised her, but because I was rooting for Jess, along with everyone else. Jess is the original hero of Love Island, and she's never been topped. Naomi is the ultimate heel, because she was the sworn enemy of Love Island's ultimate face. All right. You knew it was coming, right? You got one more for us? Yeah, and you know who's coming. Who's coming? Adam C. Oh, Adam from season four. My personal least favorite. He wasn't even that good looking. I mean, I can appreciate he had a sick body and he had nice tattoos, but guys with a hot body and cool tattoos are a dime a dozen. I want to know how he managed to go on that run of heartbreaks and gaslights, getting all those girls stuck in his dick sand with almost no consequences. Kendall was spooky looking. She had a real Carrie vibe, and I don't mean Bradshaw. And Rosie was great. So I understood that choice to dump Kendall for Rosie. Except he was so mean about it. To be fair, Kendall fully admitted later that she wasn't ready and that she had a hand in it too. And since Adam was picking up on those vibes, he had every right to tell her, hey, I need to move on. This isn't working out. But he was mean. He didn't have to be mean. And then Rosie was cool as hell. And again, he was a fuckboy to her. He left her love kernels while humiliating and demeaning her. And that smirk on his punchable face when she discussed her concerns was disgusting. Right? He went after Megan the second she walked into the house. And at least thankfully, she didn't give him the time of day. Once Zara came in, he was on to the next one once again, and he sold Rosie out in the makeup challenge where he made her look like a clown and he made Zara look great. Rosie got dumped from the island because she (gasps) tried to hold him accountable, and the more she prodded, the more he shied away and treated her like trash. And then seeing all this, Zara was still ready to party. And then he was so upset when she left, and he was going to leave with her, and he didn't. And he was so sad that he brought Daryl back from Casa Amor. I don't give a flying fuck if he and Zara got back together when he left. That's on her. And the icing on the shit cake is that none of the guys called him out. Once or twice they murmured, you know, some jocular disapproval. Oh, that Adam. But they never once defended any of the wrong women. Adam is the ultimate heel because the show is called Love Island. But Adam was the king of the complete opposite island. Fuckboy Island. Wow. You know, there's a lot more swearing in these bonus episodes than our regular episodes. I've just noticed that. I feel like in this section, it's perfectly reasonable. Sure, sure. Anyway, a couple thoughts. So first, Adam also looked, I would, whenever they showed his age, right? He's like 22 on the show or something like that. He looked like he was 35. 28. Yeah, he looked way older. But so than, does Finn. Yeah, but not like... I mean, Adam looks just way unbelievable for his age. And He's I guess... probably lived pretty hard in his 22 years and just looks shitty. Yeah, possibly. Second was, in hindsight, Dr. Alex and Adam being friends on the show, at least, and those two guys were very close, kind of makes sense when you think about how Alex treated Alexandra. And I, I just realized that. Oh, yeah. Adam totally gave him license to do that. 
Adam set the tone of how the boys were supposed to act. And then anybody who didn't act that shitty looked good, right? He made Wes look good. Yeah. And I liked Wes despite everything because he was funny. So that is, that's a good segue into my last one. My last ultimate heel. This is the, I actually think he is just, just so unlikable. And it's almost, again, it's kind of comical how unlikable he is. And that of course is Theo from season three. Who am I calling a bellend? I'm calling you a bellend because you're a bellend, Theo. That scene is a classic. He's one of the most memorable heels in all of Love Island, brought into the villa to turn Amber's head away from Kem. Theo gleefully embraces this role, but by this point, Amber is firmly committed to staying with Kem. So Theo does what any good heel would do in that situation. Find another couple to break up. Despite Tyla telling him that she doesn't want to couple up with him, Theo picks her anyway in a recoupling. He doesn't even seem annoyed when she runs over to kiss Johnny before she sits next to him. Oh, Johnny. Yep, he's amused by it, right? Theo is amused. He's taking pleasure in frustrating both Johnny and Tyla. Theo lies to everyone, and unlike Emma... He doesn't really have a clear strategy uh, besides pissing people off and doing whatever the hell he wants. Theo is kind of the chaotic evil compared to Emma's lawful evil. And I think that's like a Dungeons and Dragons thing, maybe. I don't know. I am not. My, my, one of my brothers is very into Dungeons and Dragons. No, that missed my whole house. And of course, he barely lasts on the island. As a result, his short stay is not even two full weeks and it's only surprising when you think about the big impression he made you know it seems like he was on longer maybe and one of his more interesting and significant impacts was making johnny sympathetic before he leaves the island that's debatable i i think it really does happen because i mean johnny is definitely undoubtedly one of the main villains of season three um when theo arrives in the villa right His treatment of Camilla, the way he talks about her, makes him really unsympathetic, despite the fact he makes a very good first impression in a couple days. I mean, he he does come in with Chris Hughes, who is an enormous asshole when he first gets to the villa. Well, he was like a polar bear. Everybody wanted Chris Hughes was like a polar bear. Everybody wanted to be with him. Those are his own words. Polar bear? Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. I didn't make it up then. Okay, so... Anyway, he recouples after Casa Amor, right? Johnny recouples after Casa Amor, knowing it means Camilla might have to leave the villa, but he does seem a little bit bothered by it. He goes ahead with it anyway, but, you know, the seeds of his redemption are planted right there. But to get Johnny over, and that's, we didn't talk about that, like getting someone over, that's the wrestling expression for making someone into a face, getting them popular, getting them over with the crowd. So Theo is the one who, gets Johnny over, makes him popular. You know, just Johnny falling for Tyler alone, I don't think would have done it. So someone really more evil than Johnny was needed to make Johnny look good. And there wasn't anyone else who could have pulled it off. Of course, you know, Johnny caps it off by sacrificing himself and that totally completes the face turn, right? And that's why Johnny isn't on this list. He is not really a pure heel. He kind of goes back and forth a little bit. But without Theo as a credible foil... I think Johnny's sacrifice would have been seen as dishonest in the context of everything else that he did. You know, he spends 
over half the season being a total asshole. And it only takes Theo one week to turn Johnny into this complicated anti-hero. Theo is the ultimate Love Island heel because he makes the other heels look good. This episode of Little Bit Leave It is sponsored by Little Bit Leave It. Obsessed with Love Island UK? Welcome to Little Bit Leave It. Every week, we dive into a hopefully interesting aspect of British culture or history. Whether it's the most popular sexual fetishes or legends of Celtic mythology. We also spend way too much time talking about a specific episode, go over some slang terms, and review the Islanders' questionable fashion choices. New episodes publish every Saturday on Patreon, and then two days later on Mondays everywhere else. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, a Love Island UK podcast for the USA. So let's get back to sort of a macro view of everything. Yeah. I think one of the really interesting aspects of Love Island Kayfabe is what viewers know about the relationships between the contestants outside of the villa. So we find out at the start of season two, for instance, that Scott and Terry know each other from Ibiza and Slick Adam, as opposed to the main Adam from that season, uh, Slick Adam, the one who has slick back hair, right? Yeah, um, that was pretty obvious. Uh, so he and Scott go way back, apparently. Chloe and Kem have an awkward reunion, as do Montana and Jess in season three. Curtis famously tried to slip into Mora's DMs before the show. When you dig even deeper, you start to realize that some of the plucked cast, right, the scouted cast, while they might not really know each other personally, they do know of each other, you know, as with Curtis and Mora. Now, Curtis, I believe, was agent placed. Mora might have been also agent as well, I think. So let's focus on those two a little bit more. As Americans, unless you do your research before watching and really how likely are you going to look up the bios of the contestants before you watch, especially someone who's not even an original, um, you know, we didn't know that Curtis was already a minor celebrity in Ireland by the time he was on Love Island. So Curtis was on the first two seasons of the Irish version of Dancing with the Stars And he would have been on the third season if not for an injury, which, by the way, might have meant he never made it onto Love Island. But the point is that not only did he message Mora, she definitely knew who he was before the show. I think this puts Mora's revelation of her feelings for Curtis in a new light and raises some real questions about how genuine they were. But, you know, I think what's actually more interesting is her reaction to the social media accusations that the feelings were fake. In the season five version of the game where they try to guess which Islander is the uh, subject of nasty tweets, right? Remember that challenge? Oh, yeah. It comes out that a lot of people were ridiculing Mora for talking about Curtis as manly. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty funny, actually, because if there's one thing he's not, it's stereotypically manly. Right. So Mora pretends to be shocked and says she doesn't know what viewers are talking about. However, if you go back and watch Mora's Beach Confessional, it looks like she's trying her best to keep from laughing. Looking back, I actually think it's one of the only moments in the show, all six seasons I'm talking about, it's one of the only moments in the show where one of the contestants almost breaks kayfabe. 
especially because if you were a viewer in the UK or Ireland at the time, you would have been in on it. You'd know that Mora is pretending to be confused about why people think her relationship with Curtis is fake and why the Manly comment was mocked so much. Another obvious way the producers manipulate the show is with the order the contestants enter the villa, along with the surprise introductions of exes. There is an infamous thread on Reddit where someone claims to have been in the Love Island Season 2 cast, and they posted all kinds of behind-the-scenes secrets. So I don't think we should take this person at his or her word, and I do think it reads a bit like a guy who's writing it. I could be wrong, but that's what I think. This person, they do make some interesting claims that are at least worth discussing. He claims that all of the Islanders have met each other before the first episode and that producers get them together for two rounds of casting and observe how they interact with each other, first in a big group and then narrowed down to about 45 people who'll be the pool of contestants and alternates for that season. Uh, I think this is one of the more believable parts of his story and I'd honestly be surprised if this wasn't somewhat true. The risks of bad casting on a show like this are just too great. I mean, look at season four, right? I don't think that was cast all that well. They can't risk having a cast that's boring and doesn't have drama. It's funny because I don't think season four lacked interesting people or drama. I just think season four existed in pods. Like, I never think of Adam C being on the same show as Samira. Yeah, I can see that. It was like very clicky and different pockets of drama happened, but they never really came together as one cast. I can see that. I also think some of the most interesting arcs and contestants and characters on season four are people who don't have terribly long stays. They're in the villa for two or three weeks. Even the main villain, Adam, he is not in the last, I don't know, third of the season. Thankfully. And like Georgia and Josh, I don't think about them as as relating to Samira or Adam C. They're kind of in their own little drama lane. So this guy then says that the producers ranked all of them. And how you'd know that is kind of unclear. Oh, they could have been very open about it. Knowing they're being judged would encourage bigger personalities to get bigger and calmer ones to speak up. Part of Camilla's appeal is that she's quiet and mild-mannered, uh, especially compared to the, what the clowns are usually like on this show. Yeah, that is that is true. What does make sense is that they would yeah, make notes of how different people interact with each other and who'd be good in the villa together, even if they're not in the villa on day one. I'd also believe that producers do start splitting them into groups, you know, the so-called bombshells, the Casa Amor people and so forth. They definitely put the lower ranked people in Casa Amor, for sure. There are always one or two TV uggos and three to four TV sixes. And these people are very good looking in real life, but on TV, like, sorry, some of them are uggos for TV. So now, you know, Jess makes complete sense as the opening day bombshell in season three, wow. right? But she makes sense because the producers knew ahead of time that she was going to steal whoever Montana picked because of their history with each other. Is that fair, though? I don't think Jess really had enough against Montana to purposely want to screw her over. Dom was a top-tier guy that season, right? There weren't that many awesome guys in the beginning. Everybody's racist against Marcel. Kem is short. Chris wasn't in yet. Dom was the best guy in the beginning. So I think it's incidental he was paired with Montana. I actually think it's the opposite. I think that Jess was going to choose whoever Montana had picked. I think that the fact 
that it was dumb was actually incidental. You know, where I think it gets unclear, you know, the producers didn't know that Dom was going to pick Montana at the initial coupling. And they probably didn't know if Dom was going to pick between Jess and Montana. Yeah, really, though. Jess is arguably the hottest female Islander, and you can see him fall for her on their date. And that's when I forgave her for asking him because I was like, oh, this is in the bag. This is done. I would have been shocked if he didn't pick her at that recoupling. Yeah, I'm going to guess that the producers did not know all of that, right? I don't think they expected Dom and Jess to get married and have kids, but I do think they knew they were going to create opening day drama by having Jess as the opening day bombshell. But the biggest moves that the producers have made in terms of putting people in the villa has involved exes, right? Oh, yeah. So in season one, producers brought Jordan's ex just for a few hours to confront him and throw him off his game. Was she expected to stay or was she only brought in for an hour? I don't know. I felt like she was only brought in to mess things up. We may have to go back and rewatch that episode. Well, it was season one, so anything goes. I think they would have let her stay if she wanted to stay, and I think they let her go because she wanted to go. I don't think they knew what they were doing. I think they were just like, ha, 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 what if we did this? Let's see what happens. Yeah, I know. Season one is so fun like that, right? Doesn't season one, when they actually, Josh brings a girl back? Yeah. Do they bring two girls back to the villa? I'm trying to remember. And then, then all of a sudden, they're just two extra people at the villa. and Just what? (laughs) Yeah, that was crazy. Season one was bananas. Yeah, season one is so fun. Terrible people, some awful things, but it is just great television. Unicorns, rainbows, one night stands that don't even get their stand. Great television. So then in season two, we see Tom's ex, Emma. We've talked about her, right? She enters the villa and completely flips the group dynamics in a few days. Jack Fincham's ex shows up at Casa Amor in season four sending Danny spiraling, supposedly, anyway. But the first time they did it, they brought in Callie to couple up with Lewis in season one. You know, that was really different. They didn't bring in Callie to create drama at all. I'm actually guessing that in hindsight, the producers might regret this move. So it would have been much better for Lewis to leave than for the producers to bring in his ex. It ended up being pretty boring. Yeah, the other cast members call them boring all the time. It's like not even a secret that they're boring. Yeah, they only spent time with each other. And they were super uptight and disapproving and judgy. But, you know, I also, for the most part, understand why the producers did it. At that point, the show was still brand new. They weren't sure exactly what it was going to become. And they really only had one solid couple in John and Hannah. You know, I can see them bringing in Callie so they had a second solid couple. Otherwise, there really would not have been that much love on Love Island. It's not called Hookup Island. Right, exactly. I think they almost viewed uh, the show in a more real world sort of way. That the show was about these people, these specific people finding love. And they might have assumed that viewers wouldn't want too much turnover. There were hardly any recouplings all season. There were only like four. Yeah, I think so. Three or four. Not only did they bring in Callie, right? They also began another tradition on Love Island that has lasted to this day. Bringing specific contestants into the villa with the intention of having them 
couple up with a specific Islander. I just want to note on the real world thing, the original cast votes off most of the later arrivals. They themselves treated it like the real world. This is our house. Like they did a really good job of being a unified group, even with all the drama. Six of the final eight are original Islanders. Sure. Yeah. You know, we had Travis and then later Ben brought in. Yeah, exactly. They were both brought in for Lauren in season one. Poor Lauren, by the way. She broke up One Direction. She's fine. She is French sexy, like Francesca from season five is Italian sexy, and they're not the right vibe for the book of the contestants. You know, what's important about Travis is that he clearly lied about his romantic interest in Lauren just so he could get on the show. Anyway, that's what I think. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got Jamie coming in at the end of season three to couple up with Camilla. They're still together and have a kid now. Like we said, because they're awesome. Yeah, so in between, though, we have these so-called hostages, right? They're basically forced by the producers to at least entertain a relationship with a certain islander for the purpose of the overall narrative. So, you know, Ellie and Dr. Alex in season four definitely comes to mind. But what about some other people whose entrances are a bit more unclear? Theo was clearly sent in to cause more trouble for Kim and Amber. I think Simon was too. But what about Tyla? Right? Why was she sent in? And how about the fairly forgettable new Laura from season four? Was she sent in to mess up both Laura New Jack's uh, relationship and also the Alex Alexandra relationship or just one of them or what? Was the name Bureau running low? <laughs> you mean uh, how they all have the same names? Yes. Yeah. Old Laura, new Laura, old Jack, new Jack, and Alex and Alexandra. Come on. Yeah, season four, it's like they just... They just gave up. They just gave up. I thought we could do another fun game. So we can each pick a few random characters whose stays were maybe not memorable and try to come up with explanations as to why they were brought into the villa in the first place. In an effort to answer the question... What were they thinking? Okay. Thanks for the theme music. So I'll I'll go first. This of course time. you will. Yeah. You usually Well you do. went you went first last time. So uh, I think for my first one, I am going to go with the example I mentioned. Young Laura instead of new Laura. We'll call her younger Laura. Sorry, yeah. Younger, not not older. No offense to older Laura. I am also in my thirties. At least at the time of this recording. TikTok Still in my 30s. I think that younger Laura was absolutely brought in to break up flight attendant Laura. Oh, there we go. Flight attendant Laura and new Jack. That her name was also Laura was really just the icing on the cake. But I think Dr. Alex going for surfer Laura caught the producers by surprise. And it really cut against the grain of the character they'd built all season, right? He was the guy who was looking for love, the noble he was, guy. He was supposed to be the face. Yeah, he was supposed to be a major hero of the season. So uh, knowing that viewers were not going to respond to this really well, they had to show the negative sides of Alex's personality and his behavior quickly. And for the first time, you know, we start to see Alex really a lot less sympathetically. This becomes a big problem in the season four narrative arc. We lost one of the two chief protagonists. And it leaves us with a fairly unsatisfying ending to the Alex Alexander story. You know, they're technically coupled up, but they clearly don't like each other. I'm going to guess that the producers would want that one back. The only satisfying part was watching her family yell at him. 
I enjoyed that. But yeah, like I said before, I really hated the loss of Dr. Alex. I was really cheering for him. He was terrible at talking to women. And at first it was sympathetic, but then it just became pathetic. He did not grow at all. And that's a bummer because he had a lot of potential. So one of my biggest whys is the Alberti Stronzo twins from season one. These guys were proud, unabashed douche canoes. Like, ha ha ha, the Jess storyline was actually very entertaining. Even if it did unfairly haunt her the rest of the season, maybe she should have told the truth, right? They lasted three days, and I can't think of a single other thing they did. Everyone hated them, and they were gone. So why? Why, 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 why would they be brought back toward the end when they were trying to get laws paired off? They were the worst. She was the best. Why did they think it was fair to ruin two-fifths of her chance of finding someone worthy, right? They brought five guys in for them to speed date, and two of them were those chuckleheads, right? Yeah, that was. I felt really bad for her for that. That was just, that was awful. So speaking of bringing people back, why did they bring Sam back on season three? He had a long run. He was coupled with four different women, and he was hot and heavy with two of them. He was hot and heavy with Olivia and with Montana. And he made a lasting impression on none of them. He gave me the ick through the screen. And I think he gave those other girls the ick too. I just didn't understand why he needed to come back. He had run his course. You know, bringing Mike back, muggy or not, was a brilliant idea that didn't work out. His first stint was short but memorable. And the rumors about him and Jess in the interim were scandalous and made for great TV. With my apologies to Dom for enjoying that. He did seem changed during his return, and as a result, it was totally boring. Yeah, so I would say first on the Sam thing and bringing him back, if I had to guess, it would be because they thought that maybe Montana was not really that into Alex, that she maybe was physically attracted to him, but maybe would leave him for Sam. She had the ick from him too. He was a bad kisser. Ooh, just thinking back on it. Ooh. Yeah, and they also thought he was kind of aggressive. I don't know. That That's just my guess, what they were thinking. But also, yeah, just to give the public the option to bring him in was a weird choice because it was the public's choice to bring him back, ultimately. Anyway, my next pick is Wallace from season six. Who? Yeah, his stay in the villa is fairly brief. Uh, he gets dumped by his fellow Islanders about a week into his stay. I've read that people think he got a tough break and wasn't really given a chance. And I would bet that the producers agree. I think he was brought in to try and turn Paige's head because he's Scottish. So his first dates were with Shanice, Paige, and Sophie in that order. And really none of them go all that well. He really ends up being a dud and producers weren't able to take advantage of Paige's insecurity like they thought they might be able to. She makes it fairly clear that she's happy with Finn and really that's that. He was boring. I don't remember a single thing about him besides his hair. Maybe he wasn't given a fair crack, but he wasn't good looking enough to be that boring and stick around. I agree with that. Here's another one. I'm going to break my own rules a little bit here and go with someone who actually is memorable just because I want to talk about it. Late in season five, I think Greg was actually brought in to push Amber back to Michael and not to break them up. You know, the best stories in Love Island have all involved on again, off again drama, even going back to John and Hannah, who, while they were never really off, certainly had their share of ups and downs. 
You've got the Max and Jess story in season one, Tom and Sophie in season two, and Kevin and Amber in season three. Sam and Georgia are kind of a low rent season four version. The Michael Amber drama in season five was clearly the best opportunity to captivate viewers that season. And the producers would have been foolish if they weren't trying to end the season in some sort of redemption arc for Michael. What better way to do that than to bring in someone who would fawn all over Amber and be attractive to her while not being her type on paper. Knowing Amber to that point in the season, you know, you'd actually expect her to go back to Michael. I want to say that she should have, but I think that's the viewer in me, not the concerned adult. Michael was a baby eater. Baby eater? Yeah, I didn't make that term up. I have a hazy memory of some drunk blonde girl telling me, but I have no idea who that was or when. It's basically a grade A fuckboy, but that word wasn't around when I was a youth. Okay. So anyway, I think it almost happened. I think they almost did get back together, but... The producers didn't count on the other islanders putting their fingers on the scales so heavily. The women of the villa reinforced the growth that Amber had made since Casa Amor, and instead of the Kem and Amber arc, we ended up with something that was more like a combination of Jess from season one and Laura from season four. More of a hero's journey than a love story for Amber, who probably would have won no matter who she was coupled up with. Yeah, that was a solo victory, for sure. Yeah, there are two solo victories in Love Island history, Jess and Amber, right? I think Max and Greg weren't unlikable, but... No. Yeah, Jess and Amber would have won regardless of who they were with, unless the guy was so despicable. I mean, Greg was a good guy. Max redeemed himself, much to his own surprise. I think Max was fully committed to being a dick, and then he was like, wait a minute, I have a conscience. What does that feel like? Let's try it. Yeah, he did seem to grow a little bit as the season went on. I agree. Max was every hot cousin at your friend's bar mitzvah. I thought you used to Al as the bar mitzvah guy. No, he's no. the Israeli uh, cousin, yes. No, Al is the hot Israeli camp counselor. Oh, Israeli camp counselor. Yeah, yes. they teach like soccer or, I don't know, some other sport. And they're basically Al. They like sleep with all the female counselors. and Gross. Yeah, not that I know that guy. I hope not. No, definitely not. But that guy exists. So basically, the sponsors of this episode are us. We are sponsoring our own episode here. All right. Well, that was a fun discussion. We covered a lot, right? That was a hero's journey. It was. It was a hero's journey today. Like our sandwich that should be delivered soon. Did you order sandwiches? No, it was a joke. Our hero's journey. Oh, well now I am disappointed. Now I'm ready for a sandwich. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. And thank you for considering subscribing to Patreon. That's right. Patreon.com slash a little bit leave it. If you want to get in touch with us. For free. For free, you can email us. That's littlebitleaveitpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our DMs are open. You should definitely follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at LBLI podcast. And me at LBLI peng, P-E-N-G. Mostly it's accidentally liking and then unliking political stuff and fangirling over Amy Hart. 
And occasionally I propose something funny. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Come join the community on Patreon. Be a, be a part of starting the community on Patreon. Yeah, every time I listen to a podcast, there's this one bedtime podcast I really like, and she always thanks her newest patrons, and I'm sad. I will mention you by name. Yes, we'll, I, we'll do that, sure. I promise that if you become a patron, I will give you a nod after you sign up. Except if it's soon, because we've already got some other stuff recorded, but don't worry, it'll come eventually. Exactly, and we can always add little clips onto the end before we release it, right? You can. Yeah, okay. Maybe we won't. We'll see. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And we will be back with a regular episode in just a couple days. From Staten Island to Love Island, it's peanut butter jelly time. From Staten Island to Love Island, it's time to smell what The Rock is cooking. That's also funny because people call Staten Island The Rock sometimes. I think we'll just leave them both on there. We'll just leave them both. All right. We'll say goodbye twice. Goodbye twice.